Well, he was a young teacher and inexperienced, and I think everyone wondered, questioned how effective he would really be. And many were shocked because his methods were so unconventional and unorthodox. Really upset the establishment. He said, we're throwing out the old curriculum and we're starting with something totally new. It's based on the old, but it's an extension of the old. It's even better. He said, I'm not going to have my students sit primarily in classrooms behind desks. We're going to get out into the world. The world will be our classroom, and I'll teach you as we experience life together. And many thought Jesus was going to be a pretty poor teacher. But you couldn't argue with the results. Jesus was showing us that God's ways are not man's ways, and they're often unconventional from our perspective. I dare say the way God is working in your heart and life right now is a bit unusual, and you think it is too. Except you may not use the word unusual. You might use the word confusing, unfair, ineffective. But God's ways are better than our ways. And in the end, you cannot argue against the results. God knows what he is doing. And if you want to see another illustration of how God's methods are unconventional, just study the life of Gideon. Let me encourage you to turn to the book of Judges, chapter 7, to this famous story, the main story we think of when we think of the Old Testament judge Gideon. We think of him fighting against the Midianites. But we've been setting the table to better understand who this individual is. He was a farmer, probably waffling between serving Baal and serving Jehovah. His dad had already built an altar to Baal. God came and called Gideon to become a mighty warrior, and he didn't understand it. Lord, if you're with us, how come so many bad things are happening to us? But God had a plan. Gideon, with you, I'm going to defeat the Midianites. Gideon was a man who doubted and then believed and doubted again. A man who needed some evidence, but then would inch forward by faith. And that's where we find him when we come to chapter 7 and verse 1. Early in the morning, and that is the morning right after Gideon's fleece, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, that's the name that was given to him back in chapter 6. It means the one who brings discomfort to Baal or let Baal deal with this guy. That's the name the townspeople gave him when he destroyed the altar of Baal. Gideon and all his men, and we're going to find out that there are 32,000, when he called the trumpet, summoned, is, summoned Israel to arms, 32,000 responded, primarily from the tribes that were in the northern region, basically in the Galilee and around the valley of Jezreel. 32,000 men camped at the spring of Herod. When we take our trips to Israel, this is one of our favorite stops. Here's a picture of our group. I think this was the year 2010. And the water there is the spring of Herod, Gideon's spring, as it is often called. It is at the foothill of Mount Gilboa. Uh, that's where King Saul and Jonathan are going to die and ending up in, uh, 
their death because of a battle there. Uh, it's where they fought some victories against the Philistines. And then it's on the eastern edge of the valley of Jezreel. If you go north, north from Gideon Spring, you go across the valley almost five miles until you come to the hill Morah. And the Midianites were camped at the foot of Hill Morah. And the Israelites were on Mount Gilboa. And they came down to use this spring, as we're going to see. They were camped by the spring of Herod. Here, our, our guide, Peach, grew up, actually, in these hills. You know, we grew up... Uh, as kids playing army, kind of my generation was World War II or cowboys and Indians, Peach grew, to, grew up playing uh, Israelites and Philistines. And, you know, we had our, Hebrew, uh, we had our uh, heroes like a John Wayne. His hero was King Saul. And he played in the very place where Saul fought and where Saul died. And so our guide's giving us this rich Jewish history of the area. And then either Pastor Doug or myself will open up the scripture to this story and read it right at the spring where it happened. It's pretty amazing. Each army was aware of the other. In fact, the intelligence services of the Midianites had told them that Gideon was their new leader. He's a farm boy, not much to worry about, no serious threat. Our best intelligence tells us that their numbers, a few thousand, and we, the Midianites, count to about 135,000. We've got history to back us up. We've got numbers to spur on our confidence. We're going to do what we've done every year, and this is the seventh year. We're going to come in, and we're just going to wipe out the the crops of the Israelites, and we're going to devastate their land, then we're going to go home, and then we'll come back next harvest season and do it again. No work, just take the food home. This will be easy. Easy until God steps in. So the story looks maybe as hopeless as it possibly could be until we come to the first movement in this chapter, and I call it God weakening us. God deals with his people in unorthodox ways. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. <laughs> now, I don't think there's any general in the history of war who was outnumbered better than four to one who said to himself, I think I have too many men. Didn't think of that, Lord. Yeah, you've got too many. Uh, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. This is what I want you to do. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead, which is a pseudonym for Mount Gilboa. So 22,000 men left and 10,000 remain. That's over two-thirds. Talk about an unconventional strategy. I mean, if Gideon had any hope in his weak army, it's now dashed. He might have said to himself, Lord, what are you doing? We're already going to get massacred. And now look at all the people that have left. I would imagine that when the Lord said to him, say to everyone who trembles, you can go home, he's saying, okay, maybe five, ten, you know, maybe a hundred. 
22,000. But he's doing the very same thing that Moses was told to do to his army, reduce them. Reduction. That's what God is doing in your life and mine. He's weakening us. In Deuteronomy 20, in verse 8, Moses said to his commanders, If anyone is afraid or faint-hearted, let him go home so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. Fear is contagious. And so one timid soldier in an army could do more damage to the army than a whole battalion of the enemy. So get rid of the faint-hearted. Get rid of the fearful. By the way, I'm surprised Gideon didn't leave himself at this point. But someone has to be in charge. The first test was a test of boldness. Verse 4, 22,000 leave. God says to Gideon, you still got too many. I didn't think of that, Lord. Yeah, too many. I want you to take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you. Gideon, you don't have to worry about doing this. This is my job. I'm in the job of sifting my servants. And God is, whether you are conscious of it or not, in the process of sifting you. He's in the process of reducing you. He's in the process of weakening you. And I mean that by that, that he is weakening you from your own dependence on yourself, from all the props that hold you up from all the human resources that you're trusting in. God wants to take those out of your life. That's why the tests and trials of faith that you and I face sometimes bring us down to the end of ourselves, and it's as though God would say to us then, that's exactly what I was after. There's too much of you in you, and there's too much of me in me. And much of our life is God weakening us, testing our faith, challenging us so that we will see that he's the sovereign one in control. Now, if the first test was a test of boldness, I suppose the second test might be a test of alertness. This is interesting. God says, I'm going to sift them, and if I say to one, go, he'll go, and if I say to another, stay, he'll stay. Verse 5, so Gideon took the men down to the water, where we saw in the picture, and the Lord told him, I, I'm going to separate those who lap the water with their tongues, like a dog, from those who kneel down to drink. Now, that might be a little confusing. Uh, by the way, here's another picture. Maybe this will help us a little bit. At the spring of Herod one year, this is Roger Gray and Dor Granger from our own church trying to show these two different groups. Now, Dor in the light blue shirt is the group of the kneelers. You've got the lappers and the kneelers. Um, he's doing more than kneeling. He's laying down on his stomach. But the, these kneelers put their face down. Maybe that's a better way to think of it. Face down right into the water. It's as though they weren't concerned about the battle. They weren't concerned about the enemy. They were more concerned about quenching their thirst. They just put their face right in the water and began to drink. Whereas the lappers are the ones who got the water, maybe while still standing, and brought it to their mouth and drank while they alertly looked for the enemy. That's one way to look at it, the boldness. First, that was the first test, the timid left, and then now the test 
of alertness. Roger's kind of laughing here. He should be more serious to make it work properly. But there were other shenanigans going on that I won't tell you about in this particular picture. 9,700 were kneelers. 9,700 put their face down. Only 300 had their face up. And God said to those 9,700, go back to your tents. And now Gideon is reduced to 300 fearless warriors. <laughs> but you miss the point if you think that God is reducing the army to look at the best quality people. That's not the point. What's the reason for him bringing the numbers down from 32,000 to less than 1%? The reason, verse 2. If you win the battle when you have all of those numbers, you're going to boast that you won the battle by yourself. Here's the reason that underlines much of God's providential working in your life and mine. There's too much of you and not enough of me. If you win the battle, you're going to say, well, we had the money, we had the resources. If the church is growing, well, we've got these wealthy people or we've got all these, or we're putting on a good program or, or whatever it might be. And God says, let me, let me reduce you. Let me get rid of you and see where you stand. And so he works at testing our faith to make it genuine, to improve it, to strengthen it. That's what God is doing. He realizes that we are nothing, but we don't realize it. And we've got to get to the place where there is no dependence on the arm of the flesh. God seldom uses the crowd. He's looking for the person who realizes he's so weak, he has to totally trust God. And that's the person that can be used in the hand of God. There's a very interesting story in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 of a king in Judah by the name of Uzziah. It says that when Uzziah became king, he did what his father David did. He walked in the ways of his father David. He was obedient to the Lord. And verse 5 says, as long as he sought the Lord, God blessed everything he did. And Uzziah did some amazing things. He enlarged the territory of Israel. He made them stronger in war and fortified cities. He invented a machine that would shoot arrows by itself. Wow. He became very powerful, very strong. And we get to verse 16 of chapter 26, 2 Chronicles, and it said, But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. And somehow he thought he could carry this all out by himself. Have you ever been there? I can handle this. I know what I'm doing. I've been a Christian for a long time. You can tell if you began to think that way by the reduction of your prayer life. You say, Pastor, I don't even have one. That says a lot. Our lack of prayer says we don't need God. Genuine prayer says, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. That's what prayer genuine prayer says. So God reduces us for this very reason that when the victory is won, he gets the glory because there's no victory without his power. We are not sufficient to carry it off. Later on Mount Gilboa, Jonathan is going to die, the prince of Israel. 
But one time he went to fight against the Philistines just with his armor bearer. Two against, I don't know how many ever he was going to face. And he said this to encourage his armor bearer. He said, the Lord is not restrained. The Lord is not forced. The Lord is not dependent upon resources to save by many or by few. Numbers mean nothing to God. And when the smaller group wins the battle, God gets the glory. So the first part of chapter 7 is all about God weakening us. Secondly, God strengthens us. That's great. The weakening part of it was, I think, mentioned uh, or poetically expressed so well in these thoughts by Frank Houghton, who said, It is a secret joy to find the task assigned beyond our powers. For if the battle fought is won, clearly the praise is his, not ours. And Gideon, I don't know whether he got it yet, but he's going to. Now, looking around, he sees 300 warriors. That's it. And across the valley, 135,000. Actually, he couldn't even count them. They were so great. And this is where the Lord steps in to do something amazing, to strengthen us. Notice our weakness is mentioned in verse 9, as Gideon says he's afraid. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up. Go down against the camp, the camp of Midian, because I'm going to give it into your hands. By the way, this is the fourth time God said, I'm going to give you the victory. Four times. Once in chapter 6, verse 14. A second time in chapter 6, verse 16. A third time in chapter 7, verse 7. And now mentioned again in verse 9. I'm going to give Midian into your hands. And three times he gave him signs. Fire flaring from the rock. The wet fleece. The dry fleece. Gideon, I've given you these promises. I've given you these signs. The victory is yours. How do you feel? Are you afraid? And Gideon says, yeah, I'm scared. And that's us. That's me. I look around this world, 21st century, and if you would say, are you afraid for the church? I would say, yes. I'm more afraid for my grandsons than I am for myself. Are you afraid of what the government is doing right now to the church and what they might do in the future? Yeah. Does it shake you a little bit that society seems to be turning now against Christians in a stronger way than they've ever turned before? Yeah. But my friend, I'm only afraid when my eyes are down here. When I remember this, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stop me. Then there's strength. But I'm like Gideon. One day I'm up, the next day I'm down. So here's where God, in his mercy, reveals his grace to our weakness. The Lord said, I'm going to give Midian into your hands. Verse 10, if you're still afraid, still afraid to go down and and battle with them, I want you to go to their camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged. Underline that word. You'll be encouraged. You'll be strengthened. That's what God is doing. You will be fortified. I not only test your faith, I strengthen your faith. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to weaken us and strengthen faith. That's why the providence 
of God seems to go against me. It's not against me, but God knows how to train his children. Psalm 103. The Bible tells us that God is like a compassionate father. He's like a father who has pity or deep compassion on his children. He knows our frame. He knows how we were formed. He did it. He knows that we're but dust, and we could never stand on our own. And by the way, God's grace is given not to the proud, but to the weak. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's why he weakens us, so we're in the proper position to receive his great grace, the only thing that will strengthen us. Gideon says, I'm still afraid. Even after all the signs and all the promises, I'm still afraid. It's kind of neat. The Lord just condescends to his, his situation. It's as though the Lord lowers himself. He doesn't mind doing that to bolster the fragile faith of his true child. It's like he said, Gideon, I've given you three signs. I'm not even going to ask if you want another one. Just go down there and I'll give you one. So Gideon goes. He and his servant arrive at the outposts of the camp. They go down Mount Gilboa. They work their way past the spring of Herod. They go across the valley of Jezreel until they sneak up to the very first line of the Midianite army, the outposts. Verse 12, the Midianites and Amalekites and all the eastern people had settled in the valley, thick as locusts, which is what chapter 6 told us. Their camels could no more be counted than sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling his friend. You say, what a coincidence. Not in the providence of God. Just as a man was telling his friend, hey, I had this dream last night. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And his friend said, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon. You see, their intelligence service told them that Gideon was leading the troop, but they didn't realize that he would be a great warrior. He was just a farmer. But they knew the name Jehovah, and they thought, if Jehovah ever wakes up, we're in trouble. Not that Jehovah sleeps, but that's what the enemy thinks. If he ever comes to the aid of his people, we're in big trouble. God says, by his grace, Gideon, let me give you one more thing to encourage you. Look at verse 15. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. I love that. I love that about Gideon. He's weak. At times he's doubting. He gets doubt on himself. But he ultimately comes around and he realizes that when he sees God is God, he begins to worship. By the way, before you can be a successful warrior, you have to be a consistent worshiper. Not just on Sunday morning, and I'm glad you're here, but you need to be worshiping God every day of your life because you face a battle every day of your life. The enemy has surrounded you, and they want to destroy you and sift you like wheat, and your only hope is not your own strength, but the grace of Almighty God. And when you take hold of his promise, you need to worship him. You need to praise him. You need to submit to him. <laughs> Verse 15, Gideon returns to the camp. Isn't this comical? Get up, he says. The Lord's given them into our hands. Follow me. And Guy is as bold as a lion. 
Yeah, we sometimes put on a good front. But God knows the struggles of our heart in the secret place. And none of us is without fear. None of us are great saints. We only have a great Savior. So, that brings us to the third movement of this amazing story. God weakens us, God strengthens us, and now God uses us in an amazing way. You see, God will test your faith, and then he will encourage your faith, and then he will honor your faith. Notice the ruse, verse 16. The Lord says, okay, this is what you need to do. Divide the 300 men into three companies. Place trumpets and empty jars into the hands of all of them with torches inside the jars. Verse 17, here's bold Gideon. Watch me, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. Where'd this guy get all the boldness? He finally trusted God. By the way, this is a great definition of a leader. Do exactly what I do. Leaders should lead the way and the congregation should follow by example. The army should follow by example. Like the Apostle Paul who said, follow me as I follow Christ. If I'm following God, then you can say to others, if you're following him, say to others, follow me. What a sobering responsibility. But now Gideon takes the lead. Verse 18, when, when I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp you blow yours, and then shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So here's the picture. They have three resources, a trumpet to blow, a jar to break, and torch to burn. They've got the torch in one hand, probably holding the jar over it, and their trumpet is a shofar, which was usually attached to the body by a string. And they divide into groups of 100. So there are three groups, and they surround the Midianites. And when they see Gideon break his jar, which means the torch begins to shine, some start blowing their trumpets, and some start yelling. And it all happens surrounding the army, all at one time, or surrounding the camp, and there's utter chaos. The scripture also, also tells us something interesting. Verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the camp, the edge of the camp, at the beginning of the middle watch. There are three watches at night, generally. The first is from 6 to 10, then from 10 to 2, then from 2 to 6. So this is the end of the first watch, the beginning of the second, somewhere around 10 p.m. It's dark some people have just gone off duty. Some are still asleep as they come on duty. And the third group is in a dead sleep. And all of a sudden, this noise disorients them. And the light begins to shine in the middle of the darkness and the breaking of the jars and people coming from every directions. By the way, you know, only 300 have the torches, but it looks like a lot more. Verse 20, the three companies do the same thing. And they shout, a sword for Jehovah and for Gideon. And they hear that name, Jehovah. And they began to panic. Verse 21, while each man held his position, the Israelites all around the camp, the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. 
When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. So there was some divine confusion going on in this. I think the camels got spooked and there was a stampede. I think people woke up out of sleep not knowing what was going on and they came out and they saw people running everywhere and they grabbed their sword and they just began to swing it, killing their friends, not their foes. Verse 22 says, The army that was left fled to Beth Shittim and Zerah on the border of Abel, Meholah, and Tabath. These are all towns that are east right along the Jordan Valley and they were going to cross the Jordan into the Transjordan area back home. They were fleeing for their lives. And the ruse turns into a rout because God is able to, to defeat a large army with a small one. It's no big thing for God. And if you read through the rest of the story, they continue to pursue the Midianites and they kill some of their great leaders, Oreb and Zeb in verse 25, the wolf and the raven, and they're destroyed. And they pursue them across the Jordan until, very weary, they defeat Midian and God's people are spared. We don't have time to get into chapter 8 or the reinforcements that come that help them in their pursuit of Midian, but God gives them a great victory. Why? Victories come by faith. You know, we may not understand what God is doing in our life. His methods may seem unconventional, and they are, but this much we can be assured of. While we may not understand his ways, we can believe his promises. And we can embrace them by faith. We can fully give ourselves to the word of God and his truth and be confident in a day when many are crying out for fear. The church may be persecuted. We have no guarantee that there won't be persecution. But we have this guarantee. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stop me. And that's the promise I'm banking on. God doesn't need large numbers to achieve great success. He needs simple people. Do you qualify? Uh, people who sometimes lack faith. Do you qualify? Some people who sometimes hear the promise of God and say, I believe, and then you doubt again. Do you qualify? People like that who will push past their fears by faith to follow God. Do you qualify? That's who God is looking for. And if we will band together by God's grace and simply believe his word and go forward in love for the lost, in independence of God's word, to proclaim his truth, we're going to see God rout the enemy some way, someday. And he'll get all the glory because we had no power to do it. Someone once said that faith is like a toothbrush. Everyone should have one and use it regularly. And it's pretty healthy to use someone else's. You and I often depend upon the faith of others. We've got a great heritage. People have gone before who've built this church faithfully following the Lord. 
You say, my parents are Christian. That doesn't help you out if that's all the faith you have is your parents' faith. You've got to have your own. You've got to believe yourself. And that's why God is dealing in such unusual ways with you because he wants you to be a mighty warrior. He's already told you that. Mighty warrior. You say, I'm nowhere near that. You can be by the grace of God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4 gives us great insight into this victory. It says that whoever is born of God, whatever is born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. Faith is the victory. When we put our faith and trust in the Lord and not in ourselves, we're acknowledging that nothing can happen unless a sovereign God does it. And when we trust him, he will. So the question is this. Where is your faith? Being tested? Good. Being strengthened? God loves to do that. Is it being honored and used for the glory of his kingdom? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your many promises that we can embrace today. Help us not to live lives of defeat and doubt, but help us to acknowledge our own weakness, the lack of our own strength. For when we are weak, then you can make us strong. And take us forward, Lord, by faith for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.